Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And we're back with you this week. We're super excited. It's hot and steamy in New York City, and we're ready for a wonderful summer. A hot and steamy summer indeed, and a hot and steamy episode today. Just getting a normal episode. Not going to get too hot here. No. But Vadim, why don't you tell them what The Mentors is all about, just as a reminder? Well, thank you for joining. You have... Entered upon an experience of a lifetime where we discuss stories about ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And we're going to have some amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks, some really high-profile people, a CEO of a public company, another company that's actually um, selling coffee all over New York, and now, I don't know, they have probably national distribution, Um, a brother founding team, uh, really exciting guests. But today, you're stuck with us. Tough luck. And for those of you who were hoping for part two of the series about building what you love or doing what you love in a communist country. Uh, don't worry, part two is a coming. It's a coming. It's, okay. um, it's in the works. It's, it's a bacon. Just, we <laughs> we are uh, we're still working on that episode. We want to make sure it's as good as possible for you guys. We're interviewing uh, our older brothers who have a little bit more insight into the life of our late father, Samuel Rebson, who has a very interesting entrepreneurial story that you should listen to if you haven't heard the first part. But the second part will be here shortly. But today, we wanted to talk to you about testing, early testing of demand for anything that you might be thinking of starting. Uh, I'm glad you clarified that because I thought you were going to talk about STD testing, which everyone should do. should do on you a should all do. basis. You're all dirty bastards. Just yeah, kidding. Dirty. Dirty well, I don't know you. Girls. Some of you, some of you most likely are. The rest, please get tested. Make sure that you're clean. Um, but yes, we're talking about testing demand, and uh, this is a core concept that we talk about all the time. But actually, it came to mind recently, very recently, as a matter of fact, last week, because I, uh, one of my jobs is uh, as a venture capital investor for New York University, NYU here in New York, and um, I help develop young entrepreneurs there. And I was meeting with an entrepreneur who was working on a technology platform for event organizers, most uh, specifically activists. And they, one of their hypotheses was that event organizers need data. They don't currently get access to data about their attendees and about repeat attendees and about donations and et cetera. And so they built this technology that's essentially like a meetup for activists, but they want to have a component in there that shows data because they 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 think that it's really important for their customer. So they were going to build out this whole data uh, front end, uh, or in other words, a, a whole platform where somebody can log in and look at their data for their events, and because they thought this is useful for their customers because their customers say they want data. And by customers, I should clarify, I should say early users because this is a very very early stage startup, and. What I found myself telling them, which was almost second nature for me because I've done it so many times and Vadim has as well and other entrepreneurs we worked with, is why are you building this thing without testing whether people want it or not? How do you know people want it? And the entrepreneur told me that, well, our users say they want it. But as 
most of us listening that have tried any kind of business before, you know that saying something uh, is not enough. That doesn't actually prove demand for you. Are people actually going to use it and or pay for it? That's the only thing that ultimately proves demand. And so the advice that I gave to this uh, to this co-founding pair is instead of building this whole platform that's going to show data, if you guys are collecting the data right now, why don't you start by manually gaining insights from that data once a week and sending it in an email format to your users. Then you can gauge whether people open those emails, right? That's the first indicator, whether it's interesting for them or not. Do they open the emails? Do they click on anything? Do they act on the data at all? When you call the user afterwards and ask them, do they mention how excited they were about getting that data in their email? If none of the above happens, then you just invalidate or disprove that there's a real need for it without spending any money or time building it. So this episode is all about how can you consistently test demand without spending money or time? Because let's face it, as entrepreneurs, we all know that time and money is limited. Typically, you have none of either. Uh, You might have a little bit of time. So your job is always to run experiments, run tests as cheaply, as quickly as possible so you can figure out whether the thing that you want to do, you should do. If you're like us and you ever spent time uh, developing a product or building features or creating a curriculum or really, um, let's say, writing a long-form piece of content and then get nothing and crickets in return... uh, you know how painful it is to invest so much time, sometimes money, certainly time, which is worth sometimes more than money, uh, and get nothing in return. And so the reason why we're talking about validation is because it's an important mindset to get into to avoid setting yourself up for disappointment. And it can be applied for your entrepreneurial endeavors, but also as a creator in general. It's important to understand if what you are creating isn't going to be just something that you're building for yourself. Now, I will clarify, it's good to have a big picture ideal of where you want to be. As a matter of fact, as a leader, you need to be a visionary and you need to see where your business or concept can end up in three to five years. But It's really easy to start believing that you need to have all of that ready right off the bat before you can even launch. And that is simply not true because most businesses change a lot in the first three to six months, let alone the first year. And so you're much better off focusing on the three steps that we're going to talk about, which is guessing, confirming, then developing. In other words, sure, you need to come up with some kind of initial concept that you will essentially test with users or test through conversations with people. But then the name of the game is iterating, which is what Lean Startup and Design Thinking is all about. Uh, If you haven't read The Lean Startup uh, by Eric Ries, check it out. At the very least, read the cliff notes. There's a lot of articles written about that now. But basically, the idea is to build and validate and iterate very quickly without investing too much time and resources into it. Um, And especially with uh, so much distraction right now. It's easy to uh, believe your own bullshit, I guess, is, is, is what I'm trying to say. Bullshit. Bullshit is the official. It's really easy to uh, to think that you are right and whatever big idea you have is going to be accepted with open arms by people um, or people are going to love because you love it. But you'd be surprised that when you actually go through the process of validation, a lot of times you find that what you thought might be amazing part of your product or offering actually ends up sort of uh, not being that interesting to people or falling on deaf ears. And then 
certain parts of your offering that may have seemed trivial to you or not that interesting really ends up resonating with people. And that's why it's so important to validate as many of your assumptions as possible right out of the gate before spending a lot of your own time, resources uh, on, on building something. Yeah, and it's it's not only the thing that you're building, it's who are you building it for. Through this process, you'll be able to figure that out. So we're trying to squeeze in this the entire uh, philosophy of lean startup and customer development into like a 25-minute, 30-minute episode. So what we're going to do is tell you a couple of stories from our own personal experience and other stories that we know of people validating uh, to qualify or disqualify an idea or target market very quickly. Before we jump into specific stories, I do want to clarify that uh, it's helpful for you to start with the customer. In other words, do consider very carefully who you want to solve a problem for and what the profile of that person or business or whatever your end user or customer is looks like. And be as specific as possible. So think about you know what the persona is, uh, what are the demographics, what are the psychographics, what are the buying habits. Do dig deep into that because understanding the target customer profile or the, even the segment that you're going after will really help inform what it is that you're building. And you'll probably sort of be able to feel that through some of the stories that we're going to tell you right now. So but he mentioned guess, confirm, develop, uh, and that's just our simple way of describing the customer development process, right? You're guessing what you should build and who to build it for. You're going out in the market and talking to people before you build it to confirm that that is in fact the right demographic to target and they do in fact need what you're offering. Or if not, you should be thinking about something else. And then only then after you do that, after you guess and confirm, then do you start developing for that customer. So Couple of um, couple of months ago, well, maybe it was like seven months ago now. I was um, I had this brilliant, or I thought it was a brilliant business idea. Uh, and if someone listening to this steals it and runs with it and becomes super successful, I'm okay with it because clearly I'm not running with it yet. Maybe someday, but not right now. Hint: It's not that easy, which is why you never should worry about somebody else stealing your idea. Even if they do, the chances of them executing on it successfully and being as passionate about it and uh, invested into it uh, themselves as you were is very, very, very low. So I was thinking about, you know, what is it that startups really need? What is it that entrepreneurs really need? And I remembered when Vadim and I were starting our company, we always wanted advice from, well, a couple different people. It was advice from entrepreneurs that were in the same industry. It was lawyers because lawyers are expensive. And um, also people that knew about investing or venture capital, startup investing. I wished that I could have called up people like that anytime. And that gave me the idea of essentially an app, almost like an Uber for advice, where you could call somebody and ask them for advice. So someone can show that they're available to talk to you, let's say a lawyer, and you can pay for 15 minutes of their time that would be potentially much cheaper than them billing you for a full hour. Uh, so it could be a lawyer, it could be an accountant, it could be really anybody. It could be uh, it could be a tech person that can help your grandma fix her TV. But the idea is she can open up her phone, see that that person's available to talk, and call right then and there without having to worry about scheduling calls, figuring out availability, or anything like that. So 
my first thought is, well, how can I test this without really even building an app, right? I mean, the whole point and value of this offering is that you can instantly connect on the phone with somebody that can give you advice. How can I possibly test that? You know, it's a two-sided marketplace problem too, where I need people as experts and people as uh, people that are actually using the service. So I, I realized that I want to find the shortest, quickest path to proving whether people would even interact with a system this way. So I ended up offering myself as the expert and going out to my network to see if they would jump on calls with me. And to replicate, so my, my goal with this was don't spend any money, don't hire engineers, don't build an app, just do it. See if people will do it. So this is when I was working at Venture for America where I was a mentor to hundreds of aspiring entrepreneurs. They were fellows in the Venture for America platform, so or, or I should say fellowship. So I had access to hundreds of people that presumably would want advice about entrepreneurship. And the important thing is I wanted to mimic the experience of being able to see if somebody is available for a call and then calling them immediately when they're available to get their expertise. So what I did is I announced on Slack, right? Slack, the communication platform to the hundreds, couple of hundred people or so that I knew would be interested and said, I'm going to be available tomorrow from noon to two o'clock for 15 minute calls with anybody that wants to call me. I will announce right here on Slack in this channel, whether I'm available or not, whether I'm currently speaking on the phone with somebody, and if it says that I'm not, you can call me anytime, here's my number. So I was looking to show that, I was looking to prove that short conversations were enough, I was looking to prove that people would be comfortable with calling me without scheduling a call, and I was looking to prove that people would want to talk to me about a specific startup concept. And I did this without spending any money. And guess what? The the validation or invalidation actually worked out really well. The first time I did it, I had three people call me in about an hour. Uh, the second time and the third time I did it, I had about four or five people call me in about an hour. And these were people that normally would not have time or take the time to schedule a call with me because they thought I was busy. So there I proved right away that there is some potential for this app in the market. But... I also disqualified a couple of things. So I realized, I actually thought that I would be overwhelmed with calls because it was I was messaging hundreds of relevant people at once and I thought I'd be overwhelmed with calls, but what happened was I only got a couple people to call at any given time frame that I offered. What that showed me is that people are still somewhat uncomfortable with picking up the phone and calling someone that they don't know intimately well, even if that person is willing to offer advice for them. So the behavior of making a call is not that easy. So I won't go with you I won't go through every single thing that I learned through that process, but it was a perfect way to test something because not only was I able to interact with my users right away, I was able to validate or invalidate the type of topics and expertise that they would want to learn about or talk to people about. I was able to validate whether the use case was correct, whether the the timing was correct, whether people would call on the phone, all these different attributes, I could now go and use my learnings to tell a developer to build something or to decide I need to change this app drastically before I built it. And clearly what Sergey exhibited in this scenario is that even if you have an idea for something that is high tech and will probably involve engineering resources to build out, there are low tech ways of testing it. 
as he mentioned, he went after a community he already had easy access to using a platform where they already lived, which was Slack. Uh, and then I think you just use your calendar, right, uh, to, to actually schedule these calls? Yeah, I actually just put it up on Slack and I would announce any t- I said I'm available uh, in the next couple hours. Or I'm available from noon to two. And I announced right in the channel whether I was available at that point in time or not, whether I was in a call or not. Now, if I wanted to test this further, what I would have done is I would have had lawyers offer up time to talk to my users, accountants, uh, technologists, anybody else to figure out what is the topic that people would want to call for advice. What is more likely to get people to pick up the phone and call? But I didn't end up doing that. Well, actually, something else that you didn't mention in your story is you ended up talking to the founder of uh, an app that was very similar to the concept that you came out of that got much further. Uh, It took years for him to essentially invalidate his business because he didn't do this initial work in the beginning. So talk us through um, maybe the problems that he ran into with this type of business uh, and how he could have avoided uh, those problems had he done the necessary validation steps early on. That's actually a very good point. Another way to test demand uh, or to disqualify or qualify a business idea that you have is to talk to someone that's tried it before and failed. They will be more than willing to talk to you and tell you everything that that went wrong and the things that went right. So actually, I emailed this person, they replied very quickly, and I got on a call with them. And what I learned from them is that they actually ended up getting, I think, 20,000 users because they raised some money. They had a bunch of experts on there covering, I think, hundreds of different topics. And the reason why their company failed is they were trying to get, they were offering way too many topics, right? It could have been a person that can give you advice on how to meditate right below a person that's a corporate lawyer that can, you know, help you with your with your corporate tax filings or whatever it is, right? So there was way too many experts. There were not enough people to call each expert, so they were underutilized. And also, they had no way to confirm whether the person that was actually available for a call uh, for a call or not. So somebody would call, I think something like more than half the time, they wouldn't even be able to connect to a person. So I already knew right from that 20-minute conversation that I should focus on one or two types of expertise instead of going wide, because that's a recipe for disaster. And I need to have some sort of mechanism for making sure people are there when they say they're going to be available for a call. Otherwise, the whole credibility and everything else falls apart. And I spent zero dollars validating all this stuff. And more importantly, saved a lot of time as opposed to the founder of the other company that spent years uh, getting to the same exact conclusion. There are countless examples of companies that you're very aware of that have gone through a very similar process. One story that comes to mind is Airbnb. Uh, Again, a very low-tech solution to ultimately get to Airbnb.com, which is a site right now uh, with basically listings all over the world uh, that they've now accumulated after being years in business and, and growing, uh, experiencing hyper growth. But in the beginning, it was a very low tech solution. They identified a problem, which was I think during the Republican National Convention in Texas years ago. Now I forget what what year it was and which election, but um, they wanted to book a hotel and they realized there were no more hotels available for those dates because obviously the RNC was was happening uh, and. There was a shortage of uh, hotel rooms, but there wasn't a shortage of rooms generally available in that city, wherever it was. Uh, And so what they decided to do is they took Craigslist posts for available rooms. They essentially copied and pasted that data onto their own website. Uh, They refined the pictures a little bit and only focused on posts that actually had 
pictures in them. And then they sent an email newsletter, I believe, to some contacts that, they, contacts that they had in the area for people that were looking for apartments. Yeah, I actually think that they created their own um, ad on Craigslist that's right, that's to right. see how many people would respond to that ad. Because they knew that people were looking for hotels, not finding them, and then they were going on Craigslist to see if they could find an apartment. But the only listings on Craigslist were sublets and leases and maybe short-term stay, but certainly not two or three-day stays. And they essentially redid these listings uh, in order to show that there is uh, a lot of supply of of rooms available uh, that they could charge a premium for. And, of course, then they got people to respond to these listings. They would reach out to the people that actually had these apartments and asked if uh, folks could stay for a shorter period of time. And that's how they were able to validate that there was a real need to essentially create space during really busy times in these areas. Of course, later on, they ended up proving that there was a huge market for short-term stay uh, and that people would much rather have that type of personal experience uh, than book a hotel and ended up realizing through more validation, and you can read Paul Graham's stories about this, that they went, they went through Y Combinator Accelerator, and so there's a lot of stories there with case studies, but they found that um, the biggest thing that increased conversions for them, for people actually booking rooms, was high-quality pictures. So they invested in flying into the cities where they were expanding, like New York, and actually hiring a photographer. In the beginning, I think they were doing photography themselves, going into these apartments and taking the pictures themselves and having really high-res photos because that's uh, how users would convert. A lot of this stuff is is low-tech. They didn't have to build out a platform to do this. They didn't have to hire a team of engineers. They essentially had to test this model with boots on the ground. Uh, But they were able to do that fairly cheaply. Uber was another example of this. As well, I think Travis uh, Kalanick had an idea for Uber when he was drunk trying to get a cab in Amsterdam or something with his buddies. And when he came back to San Francisco, how did he test that? Uh, I think he he literally uh, hired a few black cars and then had his friends text him to order the cab after a night of going out. And then he was able to prove that model and raise a little bit of money around it. I mean, he was a successful entrepreneur before that already. So he had some uh, investors that he could go to immediately. But he first proved that model in a very manual way without building the Uber app, which is uh, a, an amazing piece of technology now that essentially uh, matches supply and demand of drivers and um, people that need rides. Yeah, I mean, he all he wanted to do, he was taking it one step at a time. And that that I think is really important. You know, you might have an amazing idea and you want to build everything at once, but why build before you know exactly what people want? And he just wanted to test whether, and he had money too. He had a company that he sold. He could have thrown a bunch of money at it, but he just wanted to test whether at least his friends would use a service like this. And yeah, you're right. He just got a couple of black cars and said, hey guys, text me whenever you want a ride and I'll, I'll get a black car to you. And depending on the type of business... Uh, then you start thinking about a little bit deeper, how do you grow and expand? So for an Uber or an Airbnb, it since supply and demand of apartments or cars is a big problem that you have to solve, it makes more sense to launch location by location or city by city. If you're building uh, some kind of app, you know you may want to focus on a very niche target customer and building features for that particular customer and then going wide uh, to other types of customers. So the way that you grow will also be defined by the type of business that you're creating uh, and who you are solving the problem for first, right? Focus on the people and the end users and the customers with whom your product or service will resonate the most in the very beginning, sort of the lowest hanging fruit, if you will. 
these are the people that are much more likely to be your early adopters because they're so hungry for a solution they are willing to take a chance on your half-baked solution that might not even be developed yet. One way that we did this actually uh, is by uh, starting a, a little consulting gig where we wanted to basically teach soft skills for uh, technical people. And so at the time, uh, there were a lot of these coding boot camps that were popping up, and we knew that those coding boot camps were focused on teaching technical skills to people that wanted to become developers, but didn't do as much in the soft skill side of things. So how do you grow your career? How do you handle yourself in meetings? How do you give presentations? How do you negotiate a salary? All these different things that can be labeled as soft skills. We did our initial research by going on the websites of every single bootcamp we could find and saw nothing in terms of an offering for soft skills. And then what did we do? Did we create a whole curriculum and that's like, let's say, a five-hour class or a seven-hour class or 12-hour and 30-minute classes? No, we didn't just build out a whole curriculum. We built out a cold email though. Uh, and because we were relatively certain that there were going to be people that are interested in this because they had so many people graduating with these sort of technical skill sets, we cold emailed every single boot camp we could find. And within a week of cold emails, we had 10 meetings, in-person meetings. Uh, I believe it was five in-person meetings actually and five phone calls. But within only a week worth of work, we had 10 meetings and those 10 meetings uh, ended up essentially turning into 10 pitches where we then, once we scheduled these meetings, so it was a very iterative approach, right? Okay, first send an email and see if people respond. Yeah, and we actually tried other targets. We thought first that maybe this would work for engineering teams. So we reached out to a bunch of software companies that were of a certain size. And then I think the last thing that we tried is the coding boot camps. And those were the people that responded to us. So we, we were actually doing the testing in steps. First, testing who's going to be our target, who's going to be most interested, and we test that by sending emails and seeing who would be responding. Then we tested the actual content side. So yes, the first test was emails. Let's see if people open them. Okay, let's see if people respond. All right, they responded. Now we have meetings set up. Okay, well, we need to have something to talk about in these meetings. So uh, we spent a, a couple of days putting together a well-designed pitch deck that would walk them through what a class like this would look like. So now we had to outline the class. Again, we didn't build the whole course curriculum and lesson plans. We just outlined the class. And then finally, and actually before that even, what that let us do is every meeting that we would have would be would inform what we should take out or put back into the slide deck for the next meeting. So the first five meetings already told us a bunch of stuff that's not relevant for these boot camps, uh, and it told us a bunch of stuff that they actually want to see so that the next meeting would be way more successful. And that's exactly what happened. I think after six or seven meetings, I had a call with a CEO of a boot camp out in Colorado, and the deck that we had now refined really resonated with him, and he said, okay, guys, can you come in next month? And of course, I was really excited. They paid us up front. And then fear set in because we had to teach a seven-hour class with zero curriculum created. Uh, but guess what? We already had money in hand. There was clear need from, from their part on their end. Uh, and we had validated the need uh, without doing any real work. And then, of course, the real work came in. And Sergey and I spent probably about 100 hours putting together all the content that we needed for a seven-hour seminar in that scenario. But... It was completely de-risked, and that's what we're trying to get across here. You know, you don't have to take a lot of personal risk in doing the work at the very least in the beginning to understand, is there a need for what I want to do, and how can I be as resourceful as possible in proving that that need exists? 
So to wrap this up, um, the main takeaway from these stories that we told is that as an entrepreneur, you are responsible for constantly running tests. And even when your business is successful, you might be thinking about opening another business unit or targeting a new type of customer or endless decisions that you'll have to make as a founder, as an entrepreneur about the direction that your company will take. And it's much more beneficial to you and your team if you can figure out micro tests that you can run that prove out for you who the demand is going to come from and what is it that they actually want before investing the time and money into actually building it for them. Now, something else to to mention, disclosure, um, from these stories that we told, notice that in every scenario, the people that were doing the work, including us, it may sound like a fake it till you make it kind of thing. And a bit, I guess in a sense that it is, but you have to be confident in your ability to then deliver on the product or the service and know that you will do so for that customer. So don't worry too much about everything working the way that you planned. Trust that you'll figure it out if you do have that customer or user's best interest at heart. And this iterative approach doesn't end once you land on something that you think is going to be successful or once you even have paying customers. The best companies, and Kayak.com is a perfect example, are the ones that focus on getting customer feedback all along the way and iterating on uh, on that feedback. The CEO of Kayak.com, Paul English, even when the company had hundreds of employees and was generating millions of dollars in revenue, he would take direct calls from customers that would complain about uh, the booking process on Kayak.com so that he could learn from them and then direct uh, his team in a more informed fashion. And any company that survives past a few years uh, takes that. Netflix is another perfect example. You know, they used to deliver DVDs, and then they realized uh, that people are going to be cutting cords, and the physical DVDs are not going to be consumed by people. So, in order to survive, you have to innovate, and you have to iterate on your initial assumptions. And since markets change all the time, customer behavior changes all the time. That's exactly how you do it. You're always in the mode of validating. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of The Mentors. Hope you validate and invalidate the business or the thing that you want to create. Um, Try to go out there, talk to people, and get educated. The fastest way to learn is to talk to people. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Uh, We make mistakes all the time. Even when we think about uh, ideas for episodes, sometimes we have to scrap ideas after brainstorming them for for an hour or something because we realize, you know, that was a mistake. So, no one's infallible. If you can go into it with a with a mindset that it's okay to mess up, uh, you're gonna feel a little bit better about yourself. But we believe in you and the power. Of now. That's from some other tape, uh, motivational self-help tape. We gotta, we gotta go. This is going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Wow.